Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing? My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's great to have you. Apparently, we're now giving rounds of applause to to the announcements, but maybe that's just because Aaron is back and we're all delighted. And yes, you did run a little over the allotted time, but that's okay on your first week back, I guess. In the first service, Aaron rambled on stage for a while and I fixed the TV. I was like, we're through the looking glass here. We're just switching roles all over the place. Usually it's me rambling and it's Aaron fixing stuff. And so maybe one week I'll lead worship and, and he'll preach. Those of you that sit over in this section know that would not be a good thing. (laughs) Many of you would leave if I led worship on any week. But here we go. We're jumping into a new series. I'm going to start by reading you a passage from a book called Matthew. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's fine. Matthew is one of the four biographies, Gospels of Jesus' life. Uh, And so this is is chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray together. God, as we open this book that you have given us, uh, we believe as your followers that you breathed on this. It is alive in a particular way. It is life-changing in a particular way. As we study together, would you comfort those that are afflicted? Would you afflict those that are comfortable? Would you bring new stories out of old stories? Would you do what you so faithfully do? Would you turn up in our lives and bring transformation? And we ask this because of Jesus, your son. Amen. So today we get to begin a new series. We've walked through this journey called Build a Bigger Table for the last few weeks. And now we move on to a series throughout the month of August that we're calling What If We? It's this opportunity to come together and say, what kind of community do we want to see here at South? What what purpose do we have for existing? What kind of community does Littleton and the surrounding area need us to be? If we believe that the local church is the hope of the world, then a great question for us to be asking is, what kind of local church is needed in this particular season, this particular age? Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. I get to play this role in helping lead South. But really, South has been around for a long, long time. It's an old community. So how I see my role is this, is not just creating new things, but it's this role of listening and saying, well, God, who did you make us? How can we be the best South that we can possibly be in this particular time, in this particular place? Maybe a visual image, if you get on board with visual images, is it's kind of like seeing a block of marble and and the thing is already somewhat shaped, but there's some little odds and ends that we're still knocking around with and and still moving about. And we as a group of people get to say, God, who are we? What are you using us for in this particular time? And to do that, we're going to begin with the thing that's on the wall as soon as you walk through the door. You walk through the doors here at 6560 and you see emblazoned all over that wooden wall, we are a group of people, we are living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. 
but think about that phrase for a second. Even if you're new to church, new to faith, and your sort of stance at the moment will be, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but I'm not sure he was much more than that. Well, he was a great moral teacher whose teachings have lasted a few thousand years. And, and to encapsulate that teacher's thoughts down to one or two things, that's a difficult thing to do. And if he was really who he said he was, nothing less than God living as a human on earth, then, well, wow, that's even more difficult. How do we take the teachings of this master teacher and how do we boil them down to a couple of things? And so we're going to begin this process, this journey with that passage that we just read. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? How do you sort of sum up everything in the Old Testament? And he landed on the passage that we just read. But before we get too far into that, before we jump into this idea of, of loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, let me just say this. So often I feel sermons are like love letters. What do I mean by them being love letters? For those of you that have ever written a love letter, there's a good chance that you've written a love letter and never sent it. The reason for that is this. You were the person that needed to read it. You were the person that needed to write it. It's you getting out your emotions, your feelings, your processing onto paper. It may not need to go to the person to whom it's directed, but you, well, you needed to say it. And sometimes sermons are like that. Sometimes you find yourself creating sermons specifically for a community. And then sometimes in the process of doing it, you're like, wow, this, I, I am the person that needs to hear this. Because when you think about pastoring a church, what I would say I have discovered in my fairly limited years of doing it, admittedly, is this. The whole of the world now tells you that to do that, you have to lead. And there's truth in that. There is an importance of leadership. And yet, what does Jesus say to me personally? He says, you, Alex, your primary role is as a follower. You follow me on a journey and you invite people along. And if my leading of South, along with the elders and the staff, if, if that ever gets in the way of my followerness, then the whole thing falls apart. I first and foremost, you first and foremost, no matter what your position, you are a follower of Jesus and nothing, nothing gets to come before or get in the way of that. So I'm gonna throw you out a thesis to start this whole thing. I'm gonna let you just hover with it, hold it in tension. This is my thesis as we approach this topic. What has your attention will ultimately will gain your affection. What has your attention will gain your affection. I'll just leave it hovering there, write it down if you want to, ponder it, uh, and we're gonna jump into this passage. Let's give it some more context. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Up until this point, Jesus in his ministry has spent most of his time on the edges, the periphery of Jerusalem. Maybe we'd talk about it as the commuter belt. Maybe we'd talk about it as the suburbs. He has been distant. Now, depending on which of the four biographies or gospels of Jesus' life you read, you get a different impression just how long he's been teaching for. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might get the impression this has been maybe a few months. When you read John, you definitely get the impression we're talking about a few years. Jesus has come and gone from Jerusalem for different festivals, but still, regardless, most of his time has been spent outside of the city on the peripheries. 
He's gained this incredible reputation and now he makes his entry into Jerusalem for this final season before the crucifixion. And imagine yourself a few thousand years ago when there is no entertainment, there is no television cinemas. Imagine what it feels like when a celebrity comes to town because Jesus at this point is nothing less than a celebrity. He has done things that nobody else has done. He has said things that nobody else can say. And so when he arrives in town, the crowds that gather must be immense. Some of them have just heard rumors. They may not know particularly who he is, but others know specifically, oh, this is the guy that everybody has been talking about. Jesus' names has been on everybody's lips. And so when he arrives in town, there's a whole bunch of different emotions. For some people, there's joy, celebration, excitement. For some people, there's danger, there's threat. For the religious leaders, Jesus is dangerous. What does him coming to town mean? And so they, for the next chapter or so, will throw him as many questions as possible. You know how, especially in today's world, there's some questions, uh, they're really unwinnable, right? Someone asks you a question, you could ask me a bunch of questions now on stage, and there's some things that no matter what I said, I would irritate some of you. You'd be like, that's just not what I wanted to hear. Maybe now more than ever. It was still true then to a certain extent. There were questions that just would put you at odds with somebody, and so that for these religious leaders, like, if we can trap him, if we can trick him, he's going to lose support with a bunch of people. And maybe, even better, he'll really annoy the Romans who are ruling, and then maybe they'll deal with him for us. So these questions have this ulterior motive to them. And as we jump into our passage today, what, what we hear is this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, a religious group, the Pharisees got together, another religious group. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now this wouldn't have been a particularly unusual question to wrestle with in the first century. In actual fact, we can go back in history and we can find multiple rabbinic debates about what, what, what tells us what the law is. How, does it, how, how do we understand it? What's fascinating is this. For so many of the people that gave answer to this question, they went to the most complex some of them said, well, if you read Psalm 15, then it breaks the law down into 11 different sections. If you read Isaiah 33, it breaks it down into six different sections. Now, if you don't know what any of those books or names mean, that's absolutely fine. You may be familiar with this one because it's been popular again more recently. Some of the rabbis would say, if you read Micah chapter 6, verse 8, well, that gives you a good breakdown of what the law is. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what, the Lord, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. For some people, they would say, well, that is basically a good summary of all of the Old Testament rules, 613 of them. If you can love justice, if you can be merciful to others and if you can keep walking with the God of Israel, that's, that's a good summary. Jesus is asked this question, and while everybody else seems to go for the complex, Jesus goes for the simple. He takes these two passages that every single Jewish person listening would be familiar with. May not be familiar with Micah 6 verse 8, may not be familiar with Isaiah 33, but every single person listening to him would know that Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 said that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This was a prayer that a good Jewish person would pray twice a day. It was written on their doorposts. This is how central this was to Jewish way of life. 
and love your neighbour. This is found, finds itself in Leviticus chapter 19. And, and in Leviticus, this first book, a Jewish boy would be taught to memorise. In the middle of this chapter, that's all about what types of clothing you can wear. In the middle of this chapter, that's about sexual ethics. Suddenly there's this balm, this nuclear balm of love your neighbour as you love yourself. Jesus picks the two most familiar commandments and he picks the first two commandments where love becomes an imperative. What do I mean by that? For, for the rest of the Old Testament, love has been used as a verb. There's the talk of a relationship. It might say Jacob loved Rachel or something like that. But this for the first time in Leviticus and then Deuteronomy is this moment where it says, no, you shall love. This is your responsibility. You shall love. Jesus picks the most simple and the most familiar and he picks the two that talk about love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. You shall love. But the question I have for us there is, what does it mean by love? Because you and I know that the word love is, is maybe the broadest word that we use. Think about the number of contexts that we use that in. I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my God, I love my boots. I love my boots. I have had these boots for years and I will not throw them away, even though the bottoms looked like that. They have so many holes in them. I wore them on Ash Wednesday. This is the extent of my love for this community. Let me just say this. I wore them accidentally on Ash Wednesday. And we did ashes outside in the snow. Dan and I stood for an hour and a half in the snow for anyone that drove past. And these do not, as you may guess from looking at them, hold water. I mean, they just leak like crazy. And I stood there in the soaking wet, in the freezing cold with these boots that leak. And yet, did the boots go? No, they didn't. I will fix the boots. I will continue to wear the boots. And I may wear them because it's Denver and it hardly ever rains, even when they're not fixed. You may see me up on stage in them and say, I wonder if he fixed those or not. I love the boots and the boots will stay. I love, I love, I love. We use that language. We use that word in so many different contexts. Love can be used as, as a way of getting people to do things that they do not want to do. It can be used in a manipulative sense. It's so broad, so varied. What does it mean? What does love mean? And what does it mean for a group of people that were writing this 3,500 years ago? What did they mean when they said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Most commentators on Deuteronomy would say this, this is not an emotional statement. It is not asking you to feel anything. It's not saying you have to feel some fluffy feeling inside. This, for the most part, you might say, is a transactional statement. There is a transactional element to this relationship to give you some ways of understanding this that might be familiar. Some of you may have grown up saying the pledge of allegiance in school. 
I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. You may have seen like an old drama, like a medieval period film where a knight will declare his fealty to his liege lord. And, and what would happen historically is this, they would kneel in front of them, they would place their hands in between the knees of this lord they were declaring allegiance to and they would promise to love them. They would promise to protect them. They would promise to do everything they were told to do by them. This language here, when we read love, has far more in common with that than it does with the language of emotion. For this group of people, it was essentially saying, this God has done all of these things for you. Now you owe him your allegiance. Now you owe him your obedience. The language in Deuteronomy is so much about what you do rather than what you feel. It is transactional. And and as the language of Deuteronomy unpacks, what we start to get a sense of is this, God has done all of these things for this group of people. And, And if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, well, something bad may follow. Maybe judgment in terms of they may get conquered by another nation. There may be famines. There may be sicknesses. Again, all of the language is transactional. It's not about emotion yet. But what's incredible is this, as we start to unpack this Old Testament, as we read some of the different authors that God calls to write, we start to see that while the relationship here may be transactional, there is deep, deep emotion on God's part towards his people. And to track with that, to to learn from that, we're going to jump into a book that you may not have read, some of you may, this book called Hosea. It's a book that you can maybe read in 15, 20 minutes if you want to go away and read it. It's a fascinating journey, a fascinating narrative that starts with this passage. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Go and marry a promiscuous woman woman. Now, when we hear the word prophet, there's a good chance that what we hear in the 21st century is we hear someone who predicts the future. Now, now is that a part that prophets played? Yes, but, but a better way I would suggest to understand this word prophet is to understand activists. So think of someone in the world that you see as an activist who protests against a certain element of society. It works better for the illustration always if you hate that person because it ruffles your feathers a little bit. But think about someone who you see standing up saying, this is wrong in the world. That is the best way to understand how a prophet worked in this time period. They were people that saw society as broken and they spoke up against it. But there's these incredible moments where God asks these prophets to do some of the most outrageous things. A prophet called Isaiah, he tells to walk around naked for three years. It's only after the period of three years that he says something like, oh, by the way, you'll have noticed my prophet Isaiah has been naked for a certain period of time. And you think about all of the the struggle must have been there in Isaiah as he's obedient, even in the midst of this sort of crazy request. Another prophet, Ezekiel, is told to lie on his side for 90 days and then to roll over and lie on his other side. They were often asked to do these things to demonstrate something about God's message, but but none of them quite compares to Hosea, whose whole life is taken apart with this one sentence, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children. Something about this relationship that Hosea has is reflective of God's relationship with his chosen people. God says they are like a promiscuous person. They have broken the relationship. 
We were supposed to be in fealty together. We were supposed to be in relationship. And they've broken it. They've, they've messed it up. And then he goes on in verse chapter 11 to, to start to talk about the relationship, now not as a marriage, but he starts to talk about it in the context of having children. It was I who taught Ephraim, that is Israel, to walk, taking them by the arms, but they, they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. This relationship that we're told to start with, we're given in transactional terms. Now in Hosea has this deep, deep emotion in it. God loves this people. He sees himself like a father of these children. Now, for those of you that are parents, I'm guessing if you think back, you maybe have some favorite photos of you with particular kids. Uh, and I have a couple to share that helps us understand this a little bit more. So I picked Elena this week because I get to pick whichever one of them I want. Uh, they're not here to complain. So this is one of my favorite photos with Elena. Uh, this is one we took underwater with my phone because my phone said it was waterproof. This is what Apple told me. Turns out, if you have an iPhone, that is not true. They are not waterproof after they leave the store. So we took this photo because she said it would be really fun to take an underwater photo. I love this photo because the story behind it is this. It costs me $1,000. This is how much this photo is worth. Now, what made it more irritating was this. Right after I took it and the phone essentially disintegrated, uh, I remembered someone had bought me a waterproof camera the year before. So I could have had the photo for free, but the question is, would it have meant as much if it had been free? I love this photo, but I also love this photo. I love this photo because I know where I was in this photo. Now, you may say very intuitively, I'm, I'm not in the photo. No, I'm not. But I was stood somewhere about where this table is as this photo was taken. It was my sister-in-law that took it. She's a professional photographer. And she said, what I want you to do is I want you to be the one that gets her attention. And we were trying to get the leaves falling around us. And she said, at the right moment, I want you to throw the leaves and get her to throw the leaves as well. And I want you to get her focus looking that way. I remember being stood right here and the fact that that joy, that face, that smile is created by our relationship, by the joy that we have. The, the way that Hosea unpacks this relationship he has with his people, Israel, is really similar to the way we may say the relationship of a father or a parent and a child. It seems like so many in so many of the narratives, God is stood off to the side just trying to get his children's attention. He picks these two big images, these two big relationships, one of a marriage, one of a parent. And he says, this is what it's like. And then look as the passage unfolds and he starts to talk about the ways that his people have, they've, they've not lived up to their side of the transaction. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. We sense that the judgment that he said would come if they didn't live up to the transaction is coming and we're waiting to see what it looks like. And then the next verse, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. It's like in this moment of judgment, God's heart catches and he's like, no, I can't do it. You are, you are loved. 
judgment is suspended. It seems like God in his humility is willing to be characterized like this. He's like the father of a teenager, out way beyond curfew. That father stands there angry, upset, hurt, rejected, and yet stands in front of the screen door waiting for the headlights to come into the driveway, longing to forgive, longing to start over again, longing to be gracious. That is how this book characterizes that relationship. And this book is really building to that Jesus story where ultimately God will go the the complete distance to win our hearts, to win the hearts of his people. As we get to Jesus taking Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, yes, it began as transactional, but now as Jesus speaks it, it can be read with all of the emotion and all of the heart that God has for people just like you and I. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. As his followers are left to unpack exactly what this means and how it happens, every time they seem to land on this idea, we love him because of the love he first sent our way, because of what we received. This is his follower, John. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love him because he first loved us. This is what those New Testament writers land on. Our love is inspired by his love for us. And as they wrestled with that word love, they had options that we didn't. Many of you may know the Greek language has multiple words for love, whereas we have only one. So they landed so often on this word agapesis in this particular, particular verse, but you may know it as agape or agapeo, to love as God loves, to love sacrificially, to love with all of your being, with everything. This is the word that they picked so unique was this word, did this word seem to be that there was a time when they believed these New Testament writers created it out of nothing. But as we've learned more about this period, there are other examples of this word being used, but this is the word they landed on. We love and reflect God's love. We might say this, we are called to love with all our heart, soul, and mind, the one who consistently loves with all of his heart, soul, and mind. When we we see this language of heart, soul, and mind, it's not asking us to spend a ton of time thinking about how the different parts of a human being are split up. It's, It's really just trying to capture everything. This God loves with every part of him, and we are called to love him in return with every part of us. And so here's this question. For you and I, what stops this happening? It brings us back to the thesis I gave you to start with, what has your attention will gain your affection. What has your attention will gain your affection. What has our attention and how is it so easily brought to other things or how, much, how does it so easily focus on other things? There is this famous meme that's been around for a while. It's called the, uh, the distracted boyfriend and then there was the distracted girlfriend that followed. It's the Hosea image. It's unfaithfulness captured in a picture. It's a guy that looks behind him to notice another girl when he has a beautiful girlfriend with him and she has this look of shock and horror in his face as he stares at another woman walking in the other direction. And because we see it in both genders, there is this other picture, that same thing. And, and it's now used as a meme to capture how we get focused on the wrong thing so often, but it's the Hosea picture. It's this picture of unfaithfulness. What has your 
attention? What is it that captures and captivates you and I? If what has our attention will gain our affection, and we know that this passage, it pushes us to be people whose attention and focus is on the God of the universe who loves us, what, what are the other things? Now, I, I think so many of those other things can be good. It can be your job, it can be promotion, it can be the career, the business, it can be the family, which is a wonderful gift. That can be the attention. It can be the cryptocurrency market, it can be the stock exchange. It can be so many things. It can be the hobby, the interest. It can be things that are good. But if they take our attention ultimately from this God that calls us to know and love him, then they become negative things, right? But as I sort of wrestled with this myself, as I asked myself all of these questions about myself, it wasn't all of those things particularly. When I have to sort of narrow it down to the thing that gains the most of my attention, this is what I landed on. This is a Greek myth. It's not a biblical story, but it is a human story. It's, is my microphone back? Am I, uh, am I back? seminary just uh, as a topic of interest we had to stand at the bottom of the ground and preach from the bottom of the ground just so we could feel like uh, what it would be like to be John Wesley or something like that. This battery. Yeah. <laughs> you know how to change them? I don't. You're the technology guy. <laughs> My first day back. Come on. <laughs> this is like a challenge. <laughs> sure. There you go. Can someone time this for us? <laughs> how many worship leaders does it take to change a battery pack? <laughs> Look at that. The speed with which that was done is just awesome. Imagine if you'd still been on sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> Two rounds of applause in one, uh, one, one week. That's a new record for South. Congratulations. <laughs> We're going to put you on a plaque somewhere. <laughs> On this day, August 1st, 2021, Aaron Bjorklund received two rounds of applause from the South community. <laughs> so, back to this. This isn't a biblical story. It's a human story. Narcissus is a hunter that is incredibly beautiful. No woman can gain his affection or his attention. And yet one day while out hunting, we're told he stares into a pool of water and catches sight of his own reflection. And as he does, as he looks at this over a period of time, he becomes deeply infatuated with himself. Now, in the Greek version of the story, he uh, commits suicide. Uh, in the Roman story, he turns into a flower, which is a very different ending. One is much more grim than the other, but this story doesn't end well. And yet we see this story reflected so often in the prayer life of people attempting like you and I to walk in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. This is a prayer from Flannery O'Connor, the Catholic writer. Dear God, I cannot love you the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth shadow that keeps me from seeing all of the moon. She writes about it like this. I'm just seeing the very edges. I'm just seeing the fringes, and I could see more 
if it wasn't for me, I am the thing that gets in the way. It is me. It's not the good stuff. It is me and myself, my self-importance, my involvement with every aspect of who I am. That's the thing for most of us, I would suggest. It's not the good stuff. It's the me. So, as a question to try and clear the pathway to help us to become those people living in the way of Jesus, to move into what Jesus asks us to do, which is to be people that love this God with all of our heart, what might you and I do to make that happen? I would suggest that the rhythm of life that you have might be something that helps you. What rhythm of life might help you? If we believe that prayer is fundamental to knowing this God, what, what rhythm of prayer might help you? And I wanted to give you some ideas. Now, depending on where you are in your spiritual journey, something as simple as this might be something that you want to begin praying regularly. God, if you are real, please make yourself known to me. It's a dangerous, brave prayer for someone who finds themselves lost in that uncertainty. Maybe you look at a world and you're like, I'm just not sure what I see about God in this world. This is a prayer that maybe helps you articulate that need or longing that the God of the universe may make himself real. Maybe a prayer for people like you and I, if we find ourselves with our attention constantly wandering to other things, a short prayer that gives us this reminder and pulls our gaze back might be this, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a prayer that comes from Luke 18, verse 13, or is inspired by it. It's the story about a, a very unreligious person who watches the long prayers of those that call themselves religious and says, I don't have that in me. All I have is the ability to keep my eyes downwards and say, Jesus, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, suggested this one. He said, I think that in the same way Jewish people would pray the Shema every day, I would suggest every follower of Jesus could benefit from praying this. It's from Psalm 63, verse one. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. It's this expression of our attention and the affection that follows. God, I have this deep longing that only you can fill. And then maybe there's this thought or this idea from Brennan Manning, the contemplative priest. He was asked about prayer in the contemplative tradition and he said this, in our tradition, the hour you spend in the prayer room is when you refocus, recenter on Jesus, becoming fully aware of his presence once again. When this happens, you can carry God's presence with you into the other 23 hours of the day, knowing all the time that he is with you, he is for you, he likes you, and he hears your thoughts. You'll see people and situations the way he sees them. When problems arise, you'll pray in real time, right then and there, instead of compiling prayer lists for a later, holier moment. In fact, your life will become that moment, a continual conversation with God a continual conversation with God. You and I are invited into these types of relationship and yet our attention we would probably own is so often distracted. Prayer then becomes this decision to direct our attention towards the one who loves us completely. Are there other aspects to prayer? Definitely. Is prayer a list of requests? Is prayer uh, an intercession for the world around us? It is all of those things and yet at its heartbeat it seems that prayer is centered around relationship. It is this decision to say, God, you in this moment have my attention. You have my attention. What has your attention will gain 
your affection. When Jesus says to this group of people, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind and all of your soul, really what he's saying is this, this God loves you completely, longs for your attention. You don't manufacture this feeling, this emotion, this response. It is a response of us seeing the incredible love of this God. As individuals living in the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus, to me, it begins by that fundamental relationship, that, that decision to love this God with all of our heart, this decision to give him our attention, to see the wonderful ways that we are loved and to respond in kind. But it's not just individual either, is it? Because this series is designed to ask us what sort of community we want. And I would suggest that a community full of people that do that thing is what we want. I would suggest that whatever we can shape out for South in ways of vision, of mission, of purpose, of however we want to operate in the world, what I would suggest is if it doesn't begin by that process of prayer and that process of engagement with God, then ultimately the system is flawed and broken. It begins by saying, God, who have you made us to be? It's why we have groups like the Watchmen. It's why we have prayer in staff. It's why we do those things regularly and with rhythm and seek to do them more because we long to hear from him. What has our attention as a community will also have our affection as a community. This is who we are made to be. We are made to live in relationship with this God. And it brings me back to something I said to the first service. Ultimately, we see a, a, a world right now where so many young people are leaving the church. Why are they leaving the church? Not because of Jesus. Jesus and his message are just as compelling today as they have ever been. The leaving is because the church is seen as flawed, broken, and out of date. And yet a community of people that love the God who loved them and then love the world around them because of that is just as compelling today as it has ever been. Our call, first of all, is to be that type of community. What has your attention will get your affection. We're going to move to a time of the communion table. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Depending on your religious upbringing, your tradition, you may know this thing as the Eucharist. You may know it as Mass. You may know it as the Lord's Supper or multiple other names. But we do it because it's the one thing that Jesus, or a couple of things that Jesus gave us to do repeatedly when he left. He said, continue to baptize and continue to remember me through this table. So what we'll do over the next few minutes is this. These guys will come and they will lead us in this time of worship. This first song is maybe a song of repentance. It's a song of crying out, saying, God, would you, would you revive us? Would you revive this world around us? Would you work in our hearts? Would you bring out of us all of the things that you need to bring out of us? So we're going to sing that as a community together. And then I'm going to invite you in the space to come and take from this table, to take the elements back to your chair. And we're gonna sing a very familiar hymn to many of you. It's called, My Jesus, I Love Thee. It has some old fashioned language, but the sentiment, the, the affection that we're expressing is unchanging. So as we prepare ourselves, I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes. And I'm gonna remind us of a passage of scripture written by a guy called Paul some thousand years ago. I pass unto you what I also received as a first importance, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his followers. And during the meal, he took bread and handed it to each of them. 
He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the wine, handed it to each of them, said, this is my blood shed for the sins of the world. As long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. This sacrament is about attention. With all of the distractions in this moment, we place our attention firmly on Jesus, who came and gave his life for us and for the world. We come and we place our attention on this story that works through Deuteronomy, through Hosea, but is ultimately moving in the direction of a God who would come to fix this world, who would bring it new life, who would create a better story from the old story. It's a story that you and I need, and it's a story that the world around us needs. Jesus, in this moment, we give you our attention as individuals, as a community. As we sing together, would you prepare our hearts? Amen. If you would like prayer during this time, Ivana, Formations Pastor Dana, care pastor are at the front. It's not a judgment thing. It doesn't need to be anything wrong, but maybe you need wisdom. Maybe you need guidance, healing. If you would like prayer, you're welcome to come and receive it. As this song finishes, feel free to come and take the elements when you're ready. Take them back to your seats and we'll take communion together. If you're watching online, feel free to grab those elements in this song as well. God is working in your life through this ministry. Join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org/give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.